Welcome to this week's edition of Book Tour. This is John Grisham. We are in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we are at Park Road Bookstores. I'm here with the owner, Sally Brewster, and my good friend, the novelist, John Hart. I'd like to thank our presenting sponsor, Audible, for being part of this series. Hi, I'm John Grisham, and you're listening to Book Tour. Today, I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina, at a busy place called Park Road Books. My guest today is a friend and fellow suspense writer, John Hart, who is from Salisbury, North Carolina. Park Road Books is owned by Sally Brewster, and here she is. Thank you, everybody. This is really exciting for me and for all of us at Park Road Books. My name is Sally Brewster. I am the owner. The previous owner, John Berenger, is here with his lovely wife, Gloria. You can thank him for running away from the church to start a bookstore years ago, and this is the reason why we have what is now Park Road Books. We were Little Professor for a very long time. Now we're Park Road Books, and this August we'll be celebrating our 40th year here. We were so thrilled. Um, I'll tell you what had happened was I had gone home for the weekend, and Megan, our wonderful events coordinator, who probably checked you in, she has a terrible job that she does a wonderful job doing. And she said, the publicist called from Doubleday and they have a really big author that wants to come to your store. And I'm like, man, why didn't you have him call me at home? And then I'm thinking, I'm thinking. So I'm like, I'm going through all the Doubleday authors I know. And the first one that comes to mind is Pat Conroy. And of course, poor Pat passed away. And I'm like, no, he's been here for all his other books, but it's not Pat. And I'm thinking, and I'm like, Oh, well, it could be John Grisham, but he doesn't tour bookstores, so it's not him. And then I thought, maybe it is. Maybe he does want to tour bookstores. And it was. And so it was like, ah! But we couldn't tell people at first. (laughs) So us keeping our mouth shut is really, really hard. And, of course, Mr. Grisham has written over 30 books. He's just literally amazing. And he stayed nice and sweet. And I, I guess as his wife, we can thank her for that. <laughs> so um, so let's get this started if, if they're ready to. Let's have a big round of applause for John Grisham and John Hart. Talking about book tours, uh, I uh, have not toured in a long time. John and I were just swapping stories in the back, and he's got a—we a, we tell pretty much the same story. My last book tour was in 1992 with Pelican Brief, and um, 25 years ago. And um, it was 35 cities in 35 days, and I forgot where I was. Now, you can't, you know, it's, it's business travel. It's, it sounds like it's would be very romantic to go on a book tour. Uh, it is if you can do it the way you want to do it. Uh, but the publishers back then really wanted you to get out there and stay out there. And uh, it's important to go to stores, to meet readers, to meet booksellers primarily, especially your strong independence like this one. You need to have that relationship. Um, it's important to go for local press uh, to do the interviews. And so we were doing all that. Uh, but, you know, after 35 days, I went home and I said, I'm not doing this again. Uh, this is so fun. And I told my publisher, I said, look, um, we have a choice here. You know, I can write the next novel or I can stay on the road and try to be a celebrity. And I don't want to be a celebrity. Uh, I'm not going back out anyway, so I'm going to write the next novel. And um, John and I were just talking about this, and so I want John to tell his version of the story because it's pretty much the same thing. Well, uh, first of all, I'm delighted to be here. Um, I you may or may not know this, so I'm going to give you a heads up in case the language does get a little bawdy or familiar. Uh, John and I are buddies now. I actually live in Charlottesville, uh, so we see each other all the time. So we're, we're kind of old friends. So if I start seeming disrespectful towards him, just understand there's no lack of respect. It's just that we've been friends for a while now, uh, and he'll give it back to me ten times worse, I promise you. Um, Sally has been a friend and supporter forever, so I'm always delighted to be here. I'm a little embarrassed for John. Uh, My crowds are much larger when I come here. Um, You know, for those of you in the podcast, just trust me on that. No, that— that's a joke. Um, you know, the, the No, tool- it is true here. Well you have huge crowds. But then again we don't ticket it. That's correct. Sorry. That is correct. So the you know, the transients are in getting out of the heat, you know, there's free drinks, it's great. Um but, th- but this is my neck of the woods. And so, John, thank you for bringing me in. Uh, Sally, thank you for having me. The thing about um, book tours is this. I mean, it, it does sound sexy and romantic. 
uh, it becomes less so the older one gets. So I, I applaud John uh, for his early dis- no, 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 that no, that is not what it meant. Uh, no, my point being, John had the wherewithal to tell his publishers very early on that he was not going to do 35 cities in 35 days. Um, I'm 51 years old. My last tour, which was last year, was 35 cities in 40 days. That's brutal. I mean, it's really brutal. When when one is 30 and it's a new career, it's exciting and it's great, and you can't wait to get on the next plane. And, and now I just can't wait to get home and be done. And, and I guess the point I'm trying to make is that without being uh, John Grisham, I don't have the luxury of telling my publishers what's what. <laughs> they say you're going on the road, so I go on the road. Um, and I guess the bottom line is this. I, mean, I think we should all be really uh, – we should feel very fortunate and, and blessed to, to be here tonight. I mean, this is a real big deal. Um, I mean, 25 years, 30 books. That's amazing uh, that John's. Let's have a round for John. Thank you. Thank you. All right, I asked you this question while I go, John. The, the, the tour you did last year, and I recall your tour. We thought you were crazy uh, for doing that because we went to your book signing in Charlottesville, and that was the only night you were home in like 40 days or something like that. Was it worth it? Was it worth it for your career? Was it worth it financially for your publisher to I – mean, these things are very expensive. Yeah, look, I don't know what they spent on the tour. I'm sure it was a lot because um, there are good things, right? If your publisher cares about you and they want it to be a successful tour, as you know, I mean, they they put you up in nice places and they, they hire good people to take you around and um, they work closely with the booksellers to do the best to bring in a lot of fans. So, yeah, in that regard, it's absolutely worth it. I honestly believe that the most important thing that comes from a book tour, and I, and I can wager you would agree with this, is the relationships formed with the bookselling community and with the fans and the readers. Because I, I do think that someone might tell a friend or two or three about a book that they like, but tell 20 or 30 about an author that they like. And I think that's a big deal because let's think about this for a minute. Uh, the communication between a novelist and a reader is probably the last great form of intimate communication between total strangers that remains. If you see a film, and we all see the same film, we all experience the same film, but we all read the same book and experience it differently. That's a remarkable thing. And so um, I'm always loath to do readings. I don't like to actually read the words because then I'm injecting myself into that experience. But I love meeting uh, the readers and showing them that I'm a human being and that I can embarrass myself and tell jokes. and, um, And I'll drive and I'll fly very happily for the privilege to do it. So it's all about uh, uh, independent bookstores and the great indies and, and the pressure that they are under and have been uh, under enormous pressure the last 25 years. Um, so let's talk about your store. Okay. How, long, how long has it been here? Uh, 40 years in August. Wow. And the founders Ooh. are here, the original. John Berenger, right over there. And all his right. wife, Gloria. And you bought it from them? Yes, Why? 1999, John said, buy my bookstore. And yeah. I said, you're crazy. Anybody that buy a bookstore now is insane. <laughs> and I had worked for Random House. I was a publisher's rep for a long time. But I told him, I said, I'll run it for you for a year until you find somebody to, to buy it for you from you. And I realized very quickly, like within a month, that this was my store. He didn't realize it then, but I did. <laughs> And um, same location, same location, um, same location for 40 years. No, we were actually down in the shopping center in a smaller store. John ran it by himself. One person. He'd have a friend come by and let him go to the bathroom twice a day. I think, John, that was it. Once a day. So he was on a no liquid diet. Um, so he'd get home and hit the scotch really hard. Uh, <laughs> Did you do author signings back then? Okay. Uh, this was well, one of Pat Conroy's favorite stores, right? Yep. So you knew Pat way back then? Uh, first one that I think he came from was uh, Lords of Discipline. Lords of Discipline, what, what year was that? In the mid, uh, early 80s? 70s. 70s, yeah. 70s, it was yeah. late 70s. And so Pat came here for all of his books. All of his books he came to uh, yep. the bookstore. Great. And Pat Conroy did not know a stranger. As probably many people in this store know, we were here many late nights and having a lot of fun as we are now. Yeah, and Pat, he, Pat actually was nice enough to blurb my first book. So I, I got to know him a little bit before he passed away, which is a great thing. I actually have a question for you, though, before we get off tours. Um, why, 25 years in, are you touring now? What, what was the John Grisham logic? 
I'm still trying to figure that out. I, um, <laughs> there, there's, a com- there's a combination of things. Um, many times over the years, the past you know 20 years, I would read, uh, see a story about an independent bookstore. I, mean, I love bookstores. And I would, you know, some great independent, uh, maybe a new one doing well, or maybe an old one that, you know, has been renovated or whatever, new owners. But, you know, a cool-looking space, a cool-looking store. Uh, and I would say to myself, you know, I ought to go there. I should go there and uh, hang out, sign books, meet the bookseller, say, say thanks, you know, for what you're doing because it's a very tough environment and you're selling my books and you're making it happen. Um, meet a bunch of fans and readers and, and I would have these really wonderful thoughts. The next day I would forget about it. <laughs> so that's one factor, but I have felt sort of guilty over the years because I haven't been around. Um, one factor, I think, is just boredom. I just got bored sitting around the house, you know. Um, so your wife said, John, you need to go on tour. Well, she was a factor because uh, <laughs> last year Stephen King um, toured for the first time, and Stephen's a buddy, and, and he went to, I think, a dozen cities and did big venue things. He didn't sign in stores, I don't think, and he had a ball. And he, we talked about it, and he just he thought it was the coolest thing he'd done in a long time was touring. And so my wife got wind of that. And she said, why don't you take off for a month and just, you know, go tour and go meet all your fans in bookstores? And I said, okay. Um, and I, I work at home, and, I, and my office is in a small building right behind the house. And I've been, I've been in the kitchen for 27 years, you know, in the way. And with way too many opinions about, you know, uh, how things should be run in the house or is that all you got for lunch? Did we have a different lunch? I'm tired of leftovers. Stuff like that. So she, she wanted me out of the house. And uh, so she's having a lot of fun right now with a new grandchild. Um, so all those are good reasons to tour. But I, I, I believe that uh, we, best-selling people who are lucky enough to, to be best-selling authors, should, should tour and go to bookstores. So Amen, brother. I've turned over a new leaf. Uh, yeah, a lot of it was just pure laziness. Uh, I just didn't want to be bothered. And, um, and you know, I, I said, okay, I'm going I'm to tour. So. Okay, I'm going to interject here. So at once upon a time, these were brand new writers. People didn't know them. They didn't know your books. And so the first signing, tell me about it, John. My first book signing was for A Time to Kill, uh, in June of 1989, they printed 5,000 hardback copies, an unknown publisher that went bankrupt the following year. Every other publisher had said no to A Time to Kill. And uh, an outfit called Winwood Press, I'd never heard of them, they, but they paid me 15000 bucks advance for A Time to Kill, which was, which was, uh, that was good. That was good in 1988. They printed, they printed 5,000 uh, hardback copies. The, I, I was broke. I was a broke lawyer, but I had more money than my publisher. And, and that, <laughs> they had no money for a tour or promotion or publicity, anything. I was just, they just threw me out there. And in my hometown, it was a suburb of Memphis. Uh, we did not have a good bookstore. We had a real nice library. And so I went to the librarian, a guy I knew, and I said, hey, uh, let's have a book party here. I'll, I'll order a bunch of books. And I grew up here. My wife grew up here. Everybody knows me. Everybody loves me. I've been elected from here. You know, hey, and I got a book coming out. It's a big deal. And he said, great. And I bought a thousand copies of A Time to Kill. Uh, One thousand copies myself. And I had the invoice was coming due. I was going to make some money, you know, on the retail markup and on the back end, the royal. I had it all figured out. And uh, <laughs> we actually have photographs of my kids. They were very small at the library, climbing on a thousand copies of A Time to Kill. It made a nice pyramid up on the stage. And we had a wonderful book party, a big turnout. Uh, Some of my friends showed up, the ones who didn't. I wrote their names down and still have not forgiven them. Uh, (laughs) But when the party was over, I still owned 882 copies of A Time to Kill. (laughs) And I thought, oh, man, I've messed up now because I got to pay for these things. So I went back to the librarian and I said, hey, can, I can take this show on the road. You know, can you call your librarian buddies? And, and I'll go in 35 libraries later, I finally uh, stopped selling those things. I had about 100 uh, still left in the office. My first bookstore was Square Books in Oxford. Um, and I'd, I'd pestered the owner, uh, who's a, a good friend of mine. 
became a good friend, to have the book signing. My wife and I pulled up in front of the bookstore, and it's, 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 a, it's a two-story bookstore, and we could see in the front window, and there was nobody there. And so we drove around the square again, the square of Oxford, and kept driving around. So I wanted to walk in about, you know, five minutes late. Uh, I didn't know what I was doing. Once the crowd was seated and still. Yeah, you know, once, once security had the crowd under control. <laughs> I didn't know it, but my sister, who lived about an hour away, had brought a bunch of friends uh, from, she was a nurse, she had a bunch of friends from the hospital, and they were upstairs. And so we walked upstairs, and there was a nice crowd. And we sold 44 books that day, which is a big signing. That's a very big, big signing. signing. And I think my sister and her friends bought almost all of them. Um, <laughs> I have gone to uh, bookstores with a time to kill. Um, there was a Walden bookstores in a mall in Biloxi, Mississippi, where I sat at a table in the mall just outside the store uh, with a stack of a time to kill uh, for two hours and did not sell a single one. So I've been through that. Uh, I've been, I was in a library one time where I sat for two hours. A guy walked up. He picked up the book. We were talking about it. He was, I realized he was reading the first chapter. And when he got finished, he slammed it shut and put it back down and walked off. And, <laughs> let, me, let me suggest for those of you that have an interest, when you get home tonight, go on eBay and try to find out what one of those first editions is going for. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's some silly, silly people out there that should have bought that book. Um, okay, what's your, what's your worst signing story? Oh, I, I can beat the uh, the guy reading the <laughs> first chapter. You can't beat zero. You can't. You, you. No, I, I can beat I can beat zero because uh, <laughs> someone actually meowed at me like a cat. It was the strangest thing. Um, I, I'm a I'm a I'm a nice guy. Like if somebody is going to try to sell my books, I'm going to do whatever I can to help them out. Right. So I don't much care for signings in the shopping center, uh, the big. What am I trying to say? The mall stores like B Dalton's. Uh, back when they used to have those in every uh, shopping mall, you know, in the city. They're very small. Uh, they rely on foot traffic. They don't know how to advertise. They don't know how to bring people in. So invariably, if, if we agree to do these things, they're, they're challenging. But uh, I was approached by a very nice woman at the, I guess it was Haynes Mall in Winston-Salem, asked me if I would come to the B. Dalton there and do a signing. So in, in the best of spirits, this is what I did, and, and here is how she returned that courtesy. Uh, she set a table up halfway in the plane of the door and halfway in the flow of traffic. So I look, people are having to walk around me to get past the store. Uh, and I'm sitting there with these books, and people don't want to meet my eyes. They don't want to stop. They don't want to talk to me. Uh, and I'm there for about an hour and a half. I don't sell a single book until uh, I told her I'd give her two hours. And this guy comes up, and he stops, and he picks up the book, and he opens it, and he studies it for a minute, and then he puts it down and says, meow, <laughs> and turned around and walked off. And I was like, check. <laughs> you know, I, that's it. I'm gone. Um, but the most embarrassing signing I've ever done, and this, is, this gets back to the first signing. Um, I'm from Salisbury, as was mentioned earlier. It's a, it's a great little town to be from. Uh, I've been there forever. I practice law there. I know a lot of people in Salisbury. My, my family is known. So a group of my family's friends got together to throw a launch party for my first book at the train depot in downtown Salisbury. And about three or 400 people came out, and um, I was so fired up. I mean, this is going to be perfect. And I didn't know some things about myself at that point. This whole thing becomes a journey of discovery in really horrifying ways. Um, one of the things I didn't know about myself is that I am a responsive weeper, okay? If someone that I know and that I love breaks down, I go there. So my wife, my, my editor spoke, my publisher spoke, and then I was supposed to speak next at this big lectern in front of 400 people. And my wife literally interrupted and said, I would like to say something first. And so she got up on the stage uh, and proceeded to just lose it. I mean, she was so proud. She said all these nice things. I know how hard he's worked. And I've, I'm holding it together. I'm feeling pretty good. I've got this, I said to myself, until I get up on the same platform at the same podium and look out uh, and my wife is standing there and suddenly I just embarrass myself <laughs> and in a horrible, horrible way. I mean, I'm just, I'm choking up. I can't really speak. I'm thinking about my wife. And it was humiliating. I don't know if I've had a signing in my hometown since. <laughs> Was snot involved? There was no snot involved. Oh, it was a dignified <laughs> breakdown. Okay. But I'd never really seen my wife cry in pride. I mean, she was so proud because she knew how hard I'd worked. So it was pretty. It was a pretty moving thing. That's a great story. It was good. It was good. What is your um, 
doing a signing when you have fans there, uh, what's the most unusual thing you've been asked to sign? Oh, um, those are always those are always interesting. Um, it's not as it's not as you know uh, racy uh, as one might wish. I mean, it's usually iPods, Kindles, T-shirts. I've signed a few hands, a few arms. Nobody's thrown underpants at the stage. You know, it's not like that. Um, but it, and it's usually predictable. You know, yeah. people. Well, I will say this: people will come in with um, they'll cut out reviews from the newspaper ads and ask me to sign those. And I suppose those are collectors. Um, but that's it. So, so how about you? I bet you oh, can beat I've that story a hundred times. That I've got the uh, talk about body parts. Uh, <laughs> I was in a bookstore one time. It was one of these late signings. We'd been there for a long time, and this um, the, I could see the line. It was a long line. And this uh, pretty attractive young lady uh, with a very nice figure uh, is working her way up to the, to the front. And I'm at a table. Normally, you got one or two, um, you know, bookstore employees with you to help you out, sign the books and all that. And so this lady, when it's her time to walk up the table, she's wearing a sweater uh, with nothing under it. And she, uh, she uh, runs up and says, will you autograph one of these? And she was, you know, exposed, and uh, and I, you was, know, I, was, I was Renee there? No, my <laughs> wife was not there. But I couldn't help it if she was. Uh, <laughs> Renee has never sat through a book signing. I promise you that. And so, um, I, you know, I almost stood up. I didn't know what to do. And uh, in, in the bookstore, people had disappeared. The clerks had walked away. I, <laughs> it was me and this woman, and uh, so I, you know. I'm a gentleman, so I, uh, <laughs> I signed one of them. And, uh, left or right? It was the left one. And um, full name. Uh, <laughs> even put junior on the end. <laughs> uh, well, by, by the time I got finished the book, they were, they'd, come, they'd, they'd broken it up, you know, and, and they'd rescued me. Well, um, her boyfriend was standing off to the side, okay? Did he ask you to sign something? And he was very, he was very belligerent looking, okay? These people were drunk. The, um, the line goes downstairs, and there was a big bar down there. And then every time I signed here, they would clean out the bar. They'd wait in line for like seven or eight hours. I mean, that's why I finally had to stop doing the long signings, because people were nice enough to wait forever, and I couldn't sign forever. And but this one bar, they, but late in the afternoon or late night, the bar was cl- cleaned out, and everybody's half drunk. Okay, and her boyfriend was rather belligerent looking, and he was not in line. He was just watching this. And when they got her away, uh, he started toward my table, and uh, he was unzipping his pants. Oh, no. And I saw it coming, and he said. Um, he said, since you're in such a mood to autograph, why don't you autograph this? And he was, ex- he was exposed. And um, I said, you know, I thought, I was backing up again. And I said, well, it's obvious I can't autograph it. What if I just initial it? And <laughs> and they got him, you know, they, they carried him away. We s- so this is the real reason you haven't toured in 25 we, years. <laughs> we settled down and finished the signing, and um, they came up later, uh, the bookstore owner, he said, we were wrapping things up, and he said, do you, th- do you want to press charges against this guy for indecent exposure? I said, well, sure, you can't be doing that in public places and, you know, exposing yourself. Yeah, throw the book at him. Uh-oh. He said, what about her? I said, no, nah, I'll leave her alone. She's like, <laughs> I kind of liked her. That story was told. Um, I, I, I'm not that quick, okay? Um, back when I was in college in the mid-'70s, uh, we watched Johnny Carson every night. Johnny Carson was the king of late night. He had no competition. And Truman Capote was always on his show. And Truman was usually about halfway wasted. And so Truman told that story. Uh, in a much funnier fashion on Johnny Carson one night, and we laughed till we cried. I mean, it was that funny. And for sudden, suddenly, here I am confronted with the same situation, and I happen to remember the punchline, you know? <laughs> so that's, but that was the worst thing I've ever been through in a book signing. 
Eric Carl, when he goes to bookstores, he's a children's illustrator and author, and he would draw a cartoon on some booksellers' flesh, and they would get it tattooed. Do you think that happened with the young lady? I don't know. I, I, I've thought about her often. I, I don't know. <laughs> If I ever, if I'm ever faced with that circumstance, I'm going to sign your name. <laughs> it's longer than mine. It's got a lot of loops and swirls. That's right. Um, I was asked to. I was signing one time, same bookstore, uh, during the day, and it was a long line. And they came up to and said, "There's a lady at the bo- back of the line. She's downstairs and outside, uh, and she's about to go into labor." Uh, I said, "Well, it's time for a break anyway." So I jumped up. And I ran outside, and she was uh, in labor. And so I signed her book, and they took her away. The following year, she showed up with a one-year-old child. And uh, she wanted me to sign the kid's diaper. And uh, I don't think it was clean. I think it was uh, a... Maybe she didn't like the book. I I met that kid uh, for like five, the first five birthdays. She'd bring him every year to the bookstore. It's kind of fun. We took photos. So so he's probably uh, uh, quite old by now. I would say it's probably 1996 or 97. Yeah. Yeah. 20 years old. Yeah. Support for Book Tour with John Grisham comes from Audible. But he soon learned that he could endure the confinement and the rituals. He wasn't sure, though, if he could live without his family and friends. He missed his brothers and sister and father. The thought of being permanently separated from his mother was enough to make him weep. He cried for hours, always with his face down in the dark, and very quietly. If that story from John Grisham's The Confession made you feel something, hear what an entire Audible book can do. Get a free audiobook with a 30-day trial by visiting www.audible.com Grisham. That's audible.com Grisham. Question for you, John. Uh, you're practicing law in Salisbury. Um, what made you write the first book? So my, my pat answer for this is always the grave dislike of having a real job. Um, and and that, there's humor in that, but it's true. And, and it's amazing to me the number of lawyers I've met that really just don't like being lawyers. Um, you, you might have some <laughs> understanding there. And it's, it, for me, it was just, I was sold a bill of goods. I mean, I grew up reading John Grisham, you know, and watching <laughs> L.A. Law. And I thought it was all this, like, constant excitement, right? I mean, when I was thinking about law school, L.A. Law was the biggest show on television. Um, Scott Turow had, had done Presumed Innocent. John was exploding on the scene. And I just remember thinking, God, this sounds really exciting. And I didn't understand the difference then between fiction and reality. And the reality of practicing law, as is, is we both know, and probably a few of you here, is very different. You know, I was uh, in the criminal courts. Um, I had very few innocent clients. And even those who were innocent didn't much appreciate what I was trying to do for them. They didn't smell great. They didn't like to pay their bill. It was just not a real pleasant way to make a living. So that's kind of my pat answer, but that's not that's not really the deeper answer. The deeper answer is... I just love it. I mean, I, I'm an avid reader. I grew up reading. I remember being in middle school, one in the morning, two in the morning, one more chapter. Then I'll turn off the lights. And I see some heads nodding. I mean, that was my childhood. I loved it. I adored it. Um, I was actually considering law school. Um, and I said I was going to bust John a little bit. And I, I don't mean this. But I was considering law school when um, the firm came out. It was the first of your books that I read. And I was already trying to write my first novel. I was doing a master's in accounting and trying to get published and uh, delaying law school until I could sell it for a million dollars and never have to have a real job again. But I just thought so vividly, you know, what John Grisham is doing is the best possible way to make a living. I mean, to me, it seemed very obvious that if one can succeed in writing fiction, one is making a living off pure imagination. And that, to me, seemed to be the ultimate expression of personal freedom. You write what you want, when you want, you live where you want. And if you're good enough at it and you find a large enough audience, you don't really work for anyone. Your publisher is your partner. Your readers are your friends. Um, You know, that just seemed outstanding to me. And so I watched what John did with just this amazement. I mean, I wanted to do the same thing so badly. It was just painful, especially when I started law school and realized how brutally difficult that was. Um, So I've always been a goal-oriented person, John. I mean, it was really, uh, I saw what you were doing. I thought that seemed like a really great thing to do. And it's one of the great kind of secret pleasures of our friendship is that it's not very often we get to meet our heroes, uh, let alone become friendly with them. So it's been a real, it's been a great treat. 
And that's it. That's my story. Uh, in 1987, I was trying to finish A Time to Kill. It had a different name then. had a terrible title, as it turned out. I liked it, but nobody else did. And uh, we couldn't think of a title for A Time to Kill uh, until much, much later. Uh, but the book was not finished. And I'd been working on it for probably three years. Um, had a ways to go. And Scott Turow published Presumed Innocent. And that had a profound impact on me because it was um, immediately a huge bestseller. The same summer that uh, Wolf published uh, Bonfire of the Vanities in uh, 1987. And, um, but Scott's book was, uh, you know, a fun, a fun read, great novel to read. But just the success that he was going through. You know, he was a lawyer in a big firm in Chicago, and I'm in a small town in Mississippi. Nothing in common except, um, you know, the ability to write or the dream of writing. And I watched him and uh, was lucky enough to meet him later in life and become friends with Scott. But it was a it was a huge moment in my life. There's a funny story. Um, one Saturday afternoon, I was out by the pool with the kids. Renee was in the house and Time magazine that week had published an article about some of the record advances being paid to best selling authors. Tom Clancy was one. Scott Turow was one. I can't remember. Four, Michael, five, Crichton. Michael Crichton, probably. And um, and it had the, the figures, you know, the millions of dollars being paid to these guys. And uh, I had read it, the, read the article, and left the magazine on the kitchen table, turned to that article. I didn't mean to. I just, where I, maybe the kids called me. I went outside with the kids. And I had not been writing much recently. Uh, the novel was stalled. You know, I, could, I wouldn't get anywhere. Well, Renee picked it up. And she read the story. And she came flying out the back door, attacked me at the pool, and said, get your butt back in there and start writing some more. <laughs> so what, what was the title that, yeah. that you didn't you. go with? The working title was Death Nail. Yeah. Not a great title. But, uh, you know, get, getting back to the, this issue of writers that kind of bring other writers into the, into the fold and into the pursuit, I mean, th- this is an ongoing thing. You know, I've met a lot of young writers uh, as I've come out into the world of writers uh, and I've always been incredibly encouraging whenever I possibly can. And, I, and I've seen a, a, not a lot, but a few of them have become published and, and done well. And, um, you know, and that just gives me a real warm fuzzy. Um, the, the other thing that really shaped me as a young aspiring writer was Patricia Cornwell. Uh, I was a Davidson student back in the day. Patsy was at Davidson 10 years ahead of me. And Davidson was very small, even smaller then than it is now, 1,300 Students and I just remember thinking, God, if, if Patricia Cornwell can walk these halls and and break in, then maybe I can too. So I think that that wheel continues to turn. Um, and one of the things that I love about living in Charlottesville uh, and being in John's circle is there are so many writers there, and we've gotten to know a few of them and really uh, find a brotherhood in that, which I think is great. Yeah, we have a lot of fun together. We have some long uh, lunches. Our writers group, there are four of us, and. Um, when I was in law school, our um, intramural softball team and football team was called the hung jury. <laughs> Except uh, the guy who got the T-shirts printed had a sense of humor. He, he was from Cornell. And um, our T-shirts read, the well-hung jurors. <laughs> so we couldn't wear those. Uh, so we have, we adopted the name the Hung Jury. That's our that's our writers group. We get together for uh, some long lunches, a lot of talk about books, and an occasional dinner with our wives. So we we do enjoy each other. Well, I'm I'm curious. I, I have not yet, and I'm embarrassed to admit this as your guest here tonight. I've not yet uh, read Camino Island. I have the copy. It's on my list. Um, but Inman, one of the guys in our group, reached out to me the other day because he had he had gotten word or had read. I'm not sure that in this book, your protagonist does, in fact, um, take part in a literary circle of sorts, yes. as a group of literary friends. And Inman was, you know, I don't want to say concerned because it's not, that might be too strong a word. He was curious if the reference to the literary writer who looks down on those who actually sell books might have been in reference to him. Uh, and then he said, if it is, he better be very handsome. Yeah. Do, do you have any comment on that? You tell Inman. Um, 
When I write about Inman, he'll know it. Okay. <laughs> I'll tell him. He won't have to be guessing. Uh, back to the process, John. Okay, you, you decided to write a book. How would you get the first one published? I mean, how, how difficult was the uh, rejection thing you went through? Oh, it was brutal. Um, so, you know, there, there are so many lines, I think, that separate uh, best-selling writers, and it all starts back in the early days. I mean, there, there are those who outline and those who don't, and that's the source of constant debate between us, or it's more like John tells me I'm an idiot because I don't write the way he writes, but that's the way it works. The other thing that I think d- divides writers is the story of how they got published. And I'm always so envious of writers whose first book gets published, let alone becomes a success. I mean, just being published is so remarkable. I actually wrote two failed novels before I was published. So I did a master's in accounting at Carolina. Do we have any CPAs in the room? I like to know who I'm going to insult before I actually insult them. So thank you for that. I don't know why I was doing that. It made no sense to me. I mean, my brain does not work that way. It was the most difficult time of my life. Uh, I took some bad advice from someone I trusted and ended up in the wrong place. The reason that it matters so much to me is that it forced me to do something difficult, which is to stop talking about writing books and actually write them. Because you've probably met, you have, I mean, hell, we probably all have. Um, the world is full of writers who have it all figured out up here, but they haven't put it down on the page yet. And that's really the hard part. Uh, it's very easy to figure it out in your head. And, and I'd been that guy for seven or eight years. I was always talking about the book I was going to write. And then I found myself in this program so brutally unhappy that I would study accounting all day. And then at about 10 at night, I'd write fiction until about one or two in the morning. And it was the only thing that kept me sane. And I was already scheduled to be in law school the following year. Um, and halfway through the novel, I graduated from the accounting program convinced that uh, it would all turn if only I could finish the manuscript. So I actually deferred law school for a year. Now, ask me what my parents thought about that. because that's. Um, and, of course, I thought I would sell the book for a fortune and never work again. And uh, I was, of course, the most widely unpublished author to ever come through the great state of North Carolina. Nobody wanted to represent it. Nobody wanted to publish it. I wrote a second one in law school uh, that was slightly better than that first one, but also equally unpublished. Um, two years, two and a half years into criminal practice with a brand new daughter, uh, I was um, assigned to defend my first child molester. And my daughter was about six or seven weeks. This guy was guilty. Uh, he'd abused his four-year-old stepchild and wanted to know how I was going to fix it. And so I started thinking to myself, you know, maybe I should write a third book. Um, and as I said earlier, I really am kind of goal-oriented. So I, I decided I didn't want to take the case. The judge who appointed me would not let me recuse. The firm thought I was being squeamish. So I decided to actually quit my job and dedicate myself to writing. I had enough money to, to feed my wife and child for one year. And I spent that year in the public library in Salisbury in Rowan County and wrote uh, The King of Lies, which is the one that got published. Um, and, you know, that, that's the one that changed my life. But if I'd, it would have been so easy to walk away from the first failed one, the second failed one. And I love the stories of uh, writers that I've met who have those same failed novels because I think it speaks to thing, something that matters more than most in this career, and that's really perseverance and the willing to you know, humble yourself and start over after those terrible rejections. Because, I mean, I'm telling you, what goes into a novel is blood and sweat and tears wrapped in insecurity, and all we want is someone that's in the trade to say, you are not wasting your life. And to get rejected time and time again is is brutal. Go ahead. Thank you for doing it, though, because for a bookseller, um, we don't make a lot of money, but we don't care because we're in a world that we love. And when we get an advanced reading copy of somebody that we've never heard of before and we open up the, the, the book and the first page leaps into our hearts, thank you. Thank you. Because it's such a joy and it's so exciting. And then I try to read as fast as I can so I can give it to somebody else so we can talk about it. And then I can tell you all about it. And um, so I think I have the best job in the world because I don't have to live with the book for six months to two years or however long you do it. All I have to do is read it and then tell everybody else about it. You keep your job and I'll keep my job. Okay. okay. <laughs> book selling is tough and you know it. It's, it's retail. It's uh, competition is brutal. And it's, uh, it's, it's remarkable what you do, and you're doing it well. The bookstore is thriving. Well, and this is the difference, too, between independent bookstores and, and the chains. I mean, independents generally thrive on passion for what they're doing, and so they read the books, and they know their customers, and they can recommend, and they can build careers. I mean, I think independent booksellers are probably made more successful writers than anything else, media, uh, timing, luck, anything. I mean, the indies really matter. 
And, and just to, to give an idea of hope, I think, that you should all maybe know, back in 2011, I remember being dismayed upon learning that independent booksellers in this country dropped to 1,400 stores. And then I was invited to this annual gathering of independent booksellers called the Winter Expo. Is that right? Yeah, Winter yeah. Institute. Winter Institute, thank you. Uh, that was in Denver, and five years later learned that that number had climbed to over 2,300, something like that. And climbing. Yeah, and, and they're profitable. I mean, they're ma- their numbers are going up. So I think it's a real testament to communities figuring it out, to booksellers figuring out how to do it better. If there's one thing the recession taught a bunch of us is that we are local. We are all local. Um, whether you're a printer, a lawyer, an accountant, um, you know, I can push a button in the computer, but that doesn't help feed you or you or anybody else. So it was, it was the little bit of a bright side of the recession that all of a sudden people started saying, thank you for being here. And um, we love it. We want to be here for forever. Um, so it's hard, but it, it is love. I mean, this is love. We love seeing all our people. I get very excited. Um, we have three generations of families now coming in here. And that's just amazing. Um, so we're riding as fast as we can. Good. We Good. So I have a question for you, John. Just yep. just to, to kind of, I always get the same questions. Uh, not always, but the same questions. Cycle, cycle, right. cycle, cycle. So I'm always trying to think. All right, I've got John Grisham on on the hook. What's a question that he probably doesn't get a lot? And nothing embarrassing, but but I find it fascinating. And it's a question of ritual. Are, are there rituals? that matter to you when you write, when you start a new book, when you finish a new book, when you, you know, break in the middle of the day? Are there things that you do with each book that these folks might not know about? Yes. And I would never have finished the first two had I not been addicted to the rituals, the discipline of of making myself do certain things every day. A Time to Kill took three years to write. The Firm took two years to write. Uh, back-to-back over a five-year period with no break in between. And I um, I sent a time to kill off to my agent. I had a new agent finally after being turned down by a lot of agents. And I uh, sent the book to him, and I said, uh, I called the next day. This is, this is summer of uh, 87, I guess, later in 87. And so I called him the next day, and I said, okay, you got the book. Now what are we going to do? He said, look, don't call me every day. He said, <laughs> he said I'm going to give you some advice. Um, you start writing the next book. It'll keep you busy, and you won't be calling me every day. And by the time you get it written, I'll have this book sold. And I said, okay, that's a deal. So I started writing The Firm immediately. And the only way I got those books, I, I was a busy, busy lawyer. I wasn't making any money, but the law firm was busy. It was a you know, small town where I grew up practice. I was in the state legislature. So most of the folks who came to see me for legal matters called it legislative matters. So they wouldn't have to pay because they voted for me. And, you know, so I had a lot of free clients, a lot of phone calls. Life was pretty busy. Uh, plus, Renee was having babies and, you know, the family was growing. The only time I could possibly write was uh, five in the morning. And I, and I would get up at five, set the clock for five, and I had the ritual was I had to be at my office, which was five minutes away, with the first cup of black coffee seated, seated at my desk and write the first word at 530. And I made myself do that for five years. And I, I can recall being uh, in court at nine o'clock, pretty much exhausted, because after you write for two or three hours, you, your brain's mush anyway. I can't write for more than four now. Um, but I, you know, that, that was the ritual. The ritual was, uh, you know, that, that period of time, uh, at least a page a day, uh, never less. Okay? I would not accept less than a page a day. Sometimes I, I'd write a whole lot more than one page. But sometimes if I had a big trial coming up or whatever, I would make sure I had a page a day. Those were the rituals. Uh, the rituals now are a lot more relaxed uh, but I start a new book, a legal thriller, every year on January the 1st. Uh, that's, I'm going to write something on January the 1st. And with the goal of finishing by July the 1st, because it takes about six months, uh, you work much slower, John. I don't know what you're doing with all this time you have. Uh, yeah, I've never heard this before. <laughs> <laughs> and the, you know, J- July 1st is a big deal for me uh, because that's when I finish. And it takes a month or so to get all the edits and rewrites and all that stuff done. I, I finish it sometime in August. Uh, I don't write anything for a while. And after Labor Day, I always get bored. 
Look, you want to write something else. So I started the, the children's series. The book's going to come out, the legal thriller, this year on October 24th in time for the Christmas market. Uh, One-third of all books are sold at Christmas time. That's why they're, you know, they, they pack them all in. Used to, I published on March the 1st, and I loved it because nobody else would publish on March the 1st. And I had the store to myself. And booksellers loved it. Uh, but they prevailed upon me to you know, change my schedule, and it's been good. Uh, so that's, that's my schedule. And I tell my publisher um, every year, the first part of January, yeah, I got a book. Yeah, I got a book. And I've been lucky for 25 straight years to have a book. All right, so let, let's drill this down for a minute, though. So July 1st, the end, you type the last word. What's the first thing you do when it's finished? Well, it's usually uh, a week early. Okay. I, pu- I pushed myself real hard in May and June this year because of the tour. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not writing in June, so I finished it two weeks ago. Uh, I, I turned, I turned uh, Camino Island in uh, in January, and the publisher had no idea it was coming. Mm-hmm. That was kind of cruel. But I thought, you know, <laughs> I'll upset their year. What, what, look at this. And so they're very excited. Uh, but I knew right then that the pub date was June 6th. I also knew that to, to, to be able to, to publish and tour like I'm doing now, I had to finish the book. Mm-hmm. So I got really motivated February, March, April, and May. And, and finished the book uh, June 1 of this year. So I turned it in to my agent June the 1st. So, so here's the thing about John. Um, John is a really nice guy. I mean, honestly, right as the rain. I, I, I've said that many times, and I believe it. But there's so many reasons to hate him. You know, <laughs> I'll talk to John on a Friday, and I'll be like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, I'm writing 70 pages. I'm like, you bastard, 70 pages? That's, that's like six weeks for me. <laughs> Well, you need some rituals is what you need. Uh, yeah. well, that's what I'm trying to get to the bottom of here. Discipline. There's got to be some magic fairy dust you can sprinkle around my office, something. No, it's a matter of we, we have these. Uh, we've been having this uh, disagreement now for probably five years about the actual process of writing. In Camino Island, uh, as John will learn once he finally reads the damn book, I gave it, I gave it to him six weeks ago and he hadn't touched it yet, okay? <laughs> Um, vacation. Late, late, late in the in the book, uh, the the bookseller is given his ideas and suggestions about how to write. And there's a lot of talk about literature, the writing process, books. You know, how do you do it? And, and there's a lot of that stuff in Camino Island. And so there are uh, two schools of thought when it comes to writing uh, about prep, preparing the story, planning, plotting, and all that. And I have always maintained that when you write suspense and mystery and thrillers. You better know where you're going when you start or you're going to get in trouble. And so I, I prepare a pretty extensive outline of the whole story. Uh, and one of my rules is don't write the first scene until you know the last scene. Uh, John Irving is one of my literary heroes, and he supposedly said he takes it one step further. He writes the last sentence before he writes the first. I'm not that smart, okay? I can't do that. But I know, what, I know, how, the book is, I know how the book's going to end uh, before I start it. And if you do that, and I go chapter one, I write a paragraph about chapter one, what's going to happen. Chapter two, chapter three, and when I get to chapter 40, I'm at the end of the book. Well, if you do that, you have a roadmap, and you know you've got, you know, 40 chapters, uh, 400 pages, 500 pages of manuscript. To do that, you've got to start, you know, writing 2,000 words a day. 1,000 words a day or 2,000. Thousands a minimum. Uh, yeah, so 1,000 is my goal. If I get 1,200, I'm delighted. I can sleep with 800. But see, here's, here's the thing. So I really think, and I, I mean this, I think people like you are just smarter than I am, okay? I think my life's probably more exciting, but I think you're smarter. <laughs> um, and, and the reason is this. The idea of sitting down for even months and months and months and, and visualizing an entire novel before I actually start writing, with, writing it and living with these characters every day is remarkable to me because I've tried this, and 20 pages in, the entire outline becomes a moot document because I've found some great character trait that's going to take the story in a different direction. Uh, and, and I think that once you have that document, I would lose my incentive to get up every day because I like seeing what the day is going to bring. That being said, I also wake up at 3 in the morning and can't get back to sleep because I'm terrified that I don't know what the next day is going to bring. So I, I think that I mean, and I really mean this sincerely. I think that there's a there's a switch in your mental process that I lack, which is this ability to look top down from the beginning and see how it all plays. 
I cannot get there until I've lived with these characters day after day for weeks or months and really figure out the interrelations and the character quirks and then who did what. So to give you an example, um, you can take just about any book I've ever written and whatever the bad, foul deed is, in the first hundred pages, you'll meet five or six people that are capable of it. They all have secrets and histories and shadowy bits of their of their past and their lives. And that's because I don't know who done it. I mean, uh, until I've lived with them for a hundred pages and then it all makes sense and I can bring the rest of the book home. And I love when people come to signings and they'll, I can see them coming like John's, um, you know, sweater girl, because uh, they've got a smile on their face and they're very proud of themselves. And they say something like, I really loved your book, but I knew who did it on page 50. And I always compliment their intelligence and say, you're much smarter than I am because I didn't know who did it until page 150. Uh, and I wrote the thing. Um, so, uh, again, I mean, I, I think that they're different. They're just brains work differently. Stephen King's a grope and hope guy, isn't he? Well, it depends on, you know, which version he's telling. Uh, you know, he, he, he shifts around. And by the way, John, I never wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning unless I have to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I mean, I, I, don't, I, I, I always know what tomorrow is going to bring. I don't yeah. worry about what's going to happen tomorrow. Look, I, I envy that, man. I really do. Um, but I, my brain just doesn't work that way. And I can waste months and months trying for that outline, and it will literally be rendered irrelevant. Within a month. It's just the way it works for me. Okay. Well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to beat you up in front of well, all these people. Well, I know. I'll, I'll do it over lunch. The bruises are <laughs> we're well established. This and, has been raging for a long time. Uh, we got a few minutes. Uh, how about some questions from out there? Yes, sir. Okay. <laughs> Elaborate on my suggestions for writing popular fiction. Uh, number one, do write at least one page a day. Nothing's going to happen until you write a page a day. Uh, number two, don't. Uh, write the first scene till you know the last scene. Number three, do write your one page a day at the same place, same time, same hour. Doesn't matter if it's morning, late, whatever, on the train. Scott Turow wrote Presumed Innocent on the train every morning, driving in from riding into work to Chicago. Find, find your spot, find your, your physical place, your hour of the day. If it, it could be a lunch break. Make yourself go there, shut the door, and write that page. No excuses. There's no, no excuse. No, you can't take a day off, okay? Uh, number three, uh, don't don't you don't write a prologue. This is a John Hart trick that he do he does it all the time. I don't like prologues. Uh, I think they're kind of gimmicky. Um, <laughs> we've had that discussion too. Uh, the 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 thesaurus. Uh, don't keep one within reach. I know they're at your fingertips. Okay, I know that. Uh, there are three types of words. Words that we all know words we should know, and words that nobody knows, okay? Don't use the third category. Be judicious with the second. And if you have to go find a word, try to find one with three or less syllables. A big, phony, jaw-breaking vocabulary is, never works, okay? Nobody's impressed by that. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, oh, uh, this is a, another a rookie mistake. Uh, don't introduce 20 characters in the first chapter. I mean, your, your readers, have they bought your book. They can't wait to jump into it. And don't give them four generations of the same family in the first chapter. Uh, that's a very common, I call it a rookie mistake. But you see it all the time. Four or five characters in the first chapter are enough. Um, and so I, 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 that covers most of them. And my, my list changes all the time. I'll, I'll get tired of one rule or I'll, I'll break it enough. <laughs> I'll take that rule off. And um, do you have? Well, do, I'll, just say, I'll just say this. Here's the problem that I'm faced with. Um, I cannot in good conscience or in any manner win an argument with someone who sold 300 million books. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm back against the wall. I'm, I'm on, on my heels. There's no, I cannot win the argument. So uh, I, I stand true to my own convictions. But, I mean, look. He's John Grisham. So, <laughs> Yes, sir. As a lawyer, do I enjoy writing about unethical lawyers? Uh, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've, I've been criticized by lawyers. They say, God, you know, all, look, the lawyers are always so bad. Why are you beating up lawyers and judges and people like that? And I, and I, wanna, I, I say, well, most lawyers are honest, hardworking people who don't make a lot of money. Nobody wants, wants, to read, wants to read about those guys, okay? You want to read about the guy who stole the money, broke the law, or whatever. That's the good, juicy story. Do you get tired of it, John? No, no. I mean, <laughs> look, 
I, I like to write about bad people doing bad things and the ripple effect that comes out from it. Nobody wants to read about a lovely family shopping at you know yeah. the mall. I mean, people want to read about tension. I love to steal this quote from Jocelyn Jackson because I think it sums it up perfectly. Um, she's a Southern writer who says something like this, that the best way to introduce your readers to the characters you've built is to put all those characters in a single room, lock the door, and set one of them on fire. <laughs> and, and I think that the point is really valid because, uh, you know, I love writing character-driven fiction, and the question becomes, who's going to beat their hands bloody on the door, who's going to panic, and who's going to put out the fire? But until that person is lit, we just don't know. So that, for me, is the whole purpose of writing books, is to kind of find my way to these interesting characters and see what they do. Uh, I have no idea why I'm holding forth on this, except I just love that quote. Hey, I got an idea, John. This is unscripted. It's unscripted. This is a podcast. There are no rules. We just make them up as we go. Um, so uh, you've got a book coming out. When? Uh, February 28th. Next February year. 28th. Okay. Well, it, you know, this is this is my show. This is my podcast. If I want you to plug your next book, why don't you plug it for us? Yeah, I'll shoot. Ask me again and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, I'll, yeah I'll, I'll plug this book. So um, I've, I've, I have five books out. This will be my sixth and arguably the most um, critically acclaimed and commercially successful book I wrote was my third. It's called The Last Child. Um, and I loved it. And it's funny because uh, the boys in that book are 13 years old. I, that was kind of a magical time for me, too. And it was a real meaningful experience. And one of the reasons that the book is so personal to me is kind of delving back into memories of childhood, trying to tap into what that felt like and, and find a convincing way to deliver these children to the readers. And it worked on countless levels for me. I mean, I just am so pleased with the book. I never wanted to do a sequel to it because I love the little bubble that I'd put these boys in. It was a perfect ending. I thought the book was was just perfect. Uh, but I, I missed them, and I really wanted to revisit them. So the epiphany that I had was that if I set the sequel 10 years later and they're young men, then I wouldn't disturb that bubble, and I could revisit these people in this world. It's in a fictional county here in uh, North Carolina called Raven County. Uh, and so this is set 10 years later with the boys from The Last Child. You don't actually have to read The Last Child to appreciate this book. It's unlike any book I've ever done before. And I, and I won't spoil anything, only to say this. In The Last Child, there were questions posed for the readers that hinted at elements of uh, magical realism or the supernatural. I've, I've never written a supernatural thriller. But there were questions posed in that book that really beggared easy answers uh, and this time I decided to take the gloves off and really get get dirty with it. And so it's a supernatural thriller, uh, unlike anything I've ever done before. And I had so much fun writing it. It's about the fastest I've ever written a book. Um, and for me right now, it's honestly a question of am I going to write another one with these same characters or go back to my kind of standalone thrillers. Um, I can say for what it's worth that the, the publishers are delighted. I mean, we're all very excited about it. And the um, title is? It's called The Hush. The Hush. Uh, thank you, John. Love uh, love those short titles. Yeah, I know you do. We, we, we the talk about, one word title works every time. Yeah, we, we have firm, these conversations the too. Titles, titles matter, and they're hard. I mean, they really do. Titles and character names, they have to work. I've run through almost every legal uh, word I could use for a one word title and <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it's really getting difficult. I've, I've even had a couple of times when I had to go to New York and they the, the book is at the press. I mean, they're ready to start printing books, okay? And and we don't have a title. And I would have to go in my publisher's office and lock the door and, and not leave until we had a title. And, you know, that's just no fun. Uh, I'd much rather have the title ahead of time uh, because you get used to it. Um, sometimes you get a title about halfway through. Sometimes it's the very last moment. So it, it is funny because I mean sometimes it's like a gift from above. It's just page one. You know what it's going to be called. And other times you'll try out ninety or hundred. You bring in your circle of friends and you still can't get the title. Yeah, I published the Whistler in uh, last October, and it's about a whistleblower. And I was trying to think of the title and blah blah blah. And one day I just thought, well, what's wrong with Whistler? It's sort of like whistle. You know, you're whistling. You're, you're whatever. I didn't know if it was going to work. I, I tried I try it on my wife. That it always gets a lukewarm reception. Um, and then, uh, then I'll try it out on the folks in New York, and, and, you know, they know if they like it. And you know it works if they like it, and they pass it around. My agent has a, a dozen young agents in his office, and they're all younger people. They're always, you know, trying titles or, or, or story ideas or whatever. They all loved it and blah, blah, blah. So that's how I got that. That was about halfway through. 
it wasn't it wasn't a last minute title, but it's uh, I'm always befuddled by titles. Mm. Uh, yeah, everybody everybody wants to kill a mockingbird. Okay, yeah. How do, you know, how do you, the sound and the fury, the great titles we have. Uh, those are all, have all been taken. I, we can't use those anymore. Well, and, and the risk is that one sounds pretentious, and it's very easy to come up with a title that sounds great in your head, and then someone else sees and says, no, that's the most pretentious thing I've ever yeah. seen. Yeah. Question? Yes, sir. The question is, how did I do the research for playing for pizza? I was in Bologna researching a book called The Broker, and The Broker could have been set anywhere in the world. I could have picked any country in the world to set that book. Uh, but I love Italy. I had never been to Bologna. And I, I looked at a map of Italy and said, I'm going to go there. And so I went to Bologna to do research. research. Um, and what I always do when I go to a place, I, a foreign country, I'll get a, a car and a driver uh, who speaks English. And my driver happened to be Luca, big, tough Italian guy. And we started talking about American football. And I didn't know what he was talking about. This is, you know, soccer is a religion. It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a religion. And so uh, there's, there's American football in Italy. There's an Italian football league. And each team can have like three American players, and the quarterback's always an American. It's all this stuff. So anyway, um, uh, I finished the broker. I finished researching the broker. And I went back to Parma, which is a small town not far from Bologna, where the Parma Panthers play. And I set the book there. And um, Luca used to be a chef. And so he would take me around to all the restaurants because he knew he knew all of the uh, chefs. Well, he would call ahead of time and say, I'm bringing John Grisham for lunch and he's doing research for a book and he needs to try all your dishes and he's not going to pay for anything. OK, <laughs> so I'd walk in. I'd walk in a place for lunch and Luca was driving, so he couldn't drink any wine. And, and at one lunch, I walked in. The, the table's covered with food and the guy had eight bottles of wine for me to sample, to, to taste you know, to pair with the food. And that's, that was what I did for about two weeks in Parma. I gained 20 pounds. And, and, and that's how I did the research. It was really heavy lifting. Yeah. I, I, have a, I have a question for you, because this, this is what I love about John's career. Um, and, you know, my agent said to me when, when I first signed with my original agent, who passed away recently, unfortunately, he said something like this. He said, John, let's make you a number one bestseller, and then you can write your Christmas novel. And I think the deeper truth of what he was saying is, you know, build your brand and then you can do whatever you want. And this is what I love about John's career is that, you know, he's the, the backbone of the legal thrillers. But then you go out and you cherry pick these little uh, passion projects you want to do. I, I'd like to hear about A Painted House yes. because I, I love that book. I mean, it's, it's probably my favorite book of yours. Yes. And I'd, I'd like to, he to hear about that. It's one of my favorites, too. It's, it's, uh, it's very autobiographical. The first seven years of my life. Uh, I was that little boy. I was on the cotton farm in rural Arkansas. Those were my grandparents. That was their house. Um, there was no indoor plumbing. Uh, I said it in 1952, 10 years ahead of me, because I wanted to pick up the Korean War angle. There was a little subplot there. Um, but we had, we had the, the uh, Mexican migrant workers living in the barn, and the hill people would come down from the Ozarks, and they would camp out in, in, in the front yard, and we would all do the, co the, the cotton harvest. And my parents um, were there. I, I had a bunch of siblings in the painted house. I'm the only child, which I always wanted. Uh, <laughs> too, too many kids. Uh, and we would spend all day in the fields. I had to work the fields. And uh, brutal, hot you know, tough conditions. I was expected to work. We all were. And then uh, we'd come home, have a, a light supper after a big dinner. Lunch was dinner for some reason. And sit on the porch while my mom and grandma shelled uh, uh, butter beans and, and peas and listened to Cardinal Baseball. WK, KMOX out of St. Louis, Harry Carey and Jack Buck doing Cardinal Baseball, listening to Stan Musial. And that was life. Uh, I'm not sure he even had television back then. In in the novel, Luke, the little boy, did not have a television because it's 1952. And that was, you know, and I grew up, I remember a lot of that. I also grew up listening to stories from the cotton fields told by my father and grandfather. And, and I wrote that book 15 years ago because I wanted to do it before my parents, while my parents were still alive. And we had a lot of fun uh, recounting those stories. I would call my, my mom and say, okay, who had the first television in Black Oak, Arkansas. How many telephones did you have in, in 1952? And it was a project that we really all enjoyed together. And they took a lot of great pride in the book. 
my mom wanted to get off the farm uh, desperately because she just did not see a future there. There was no future there. And finally, after a string of bad crops, uh, we had no choice but to leave Black Oak, Arkansas in the middle of the night with the creditors after us. And uh, it took my dad 10 years of hard work to pay off all of his debts. And the last debt he paid off was to Pop and Pearl's grocery store for groceries that fed us 10 years earlier. Uh, that's that's how rough things were. And that's a great story, though. Well, it, well, thank you. And, and I want to pick it up one day. In about 1967, it's all fiction, okay, but it's based in, 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 on my life. In 1967, um, probably at the age of 12 or 13, with all the world changing as it was back then with the war and civil rights and assassinations and all that, and, and, tell the sec- and we moved to the suburbs outside of Memphis, and life really improved dramatically for us. And there are a lot of funny stories that I'd like to one day get to. I've got a list of books I want to one day get to. I'm having a ball here tonight and seeing all these great stores and meeting a lot of great writers for the first time. Uh, I'll probably do it again. Yeah. Amen. You want to wrap things up uh, on behalf of uh, John Hart and uh, this wonderful bookstore. And thank all you folks for coming out. And uh, as I say, we'll see you down the road. Absolutely. Thank Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to my guest, John Hart, and to the owner, Sally Brewster of the Park Road Books and the volunteers and staff and all of the wonderful customers. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other episodes of Book Tour with John Grisham. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks to the folks at Digital Media for their production work. And thanks to our sponsor, Audible.com. See you next week on the road with Book Tour.